0: I'm in a little Advent series on the role of Messiah. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that were necessary. They were three functions. They were separate. A few times somebody thought it would be a great idea to unite those roles did not turn out well for anybody. There was a prophet who brought the word from God to God's people. And then there was the priest who represented the people to God and brought the sacrifices. And then there was the king who ruled over God's people. And we need a prophet. We need for Christ to bring to us the word from God. We need a priest to represent us to God for our alienation. And we need a king for our rebellion, to rule over our rebellion. So this morning, I want to begin by saying that Jesus was the temple to end all temples, He was the priest to end all priests, and He was a sacrifice. To end all sacrifices. Timothy Keller said that. Let me say that one more time. Jesus was the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I want to say today, as we think of Christ in this second role as as priest, as our high priest, our great high priest. That he has accomplished, I want you to think about this for a minute. The person of Jesus Christ has accomplished what all the other priests could only illustrate. Think about that for a minute. Now Jesus was an Old Testament man. The Bible says that he was born under the law. Truth be told, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually belong in the Old Testament. Everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John functions under Old Testament law. It is not till Acts and the birth of the church and the resurrection of Christ that we see in his ascension, that we see a shift to this new covenant. But Jesus, mark it down, was an Old Testament man. He had to be because somebody had to keep the law perfectly on our behalf. Amen? Anybody glad that Jesus kept the law for you? the civil law, the ceremonial law, everything. When there was a feast, Jesus was there. But what those Old Testament priests can only illustrate, Jesus actually accomplished. Think about it. Remember the lepers that he healed? He healed the leper. And what does he tell the leper to do? He tells that leper, go and show yourself to who? The to the priest. Now, now, why, why does he have to do that? Well, it's part of the law. And a priest would look and inspect this man's, where his leprosy was, and he would determine whether he had been healed and was now clean, or if he was still unclean. You see, the priest could only diagnose. He could recognize and confirm the presence of this disease. And and leprosy specifically was always represented sin. So the priest could say, oh yeah, I see it, it's there, he can diagnose it. The priest could also declare its absence, that it's no longer there, but don't miss this, don't miss this. The priest had no ability or power or office in which he could heal that leprosy. He could do nothing about the disease itself. He could only diagnose it, and he could only declare when it was not there. His job was observation, but oh, let me tell you, there was one who came. His name was Jesus. His job was transformation. Not only could he diagnose... But he, and not only could he declare it was gone, he could actually destroy and disperse that disease, that disease of sin. Truly there is an indictment in each of these offices of prophet, priest, and king. There's a built-in condemnation towards you and I. As a prophet... That condemnation looks like this. I am willfully ignorant towards and of God. Our minds, our very minds, are hostile towards God. The scriptures explain to us that we are the enemies of God. The office of priest reminds us that we are sinful and full of sin. By the way, that's what sinful means. I think we forget that, don't we? We are sinful and full of sin. And that office of priest reminds us of that. As a result of that sin, we are estranged from God. Uh, another way to put this is we're on the outs with God. I read an obituary this week. And it, was, it was quite interesting because at the end of it, it listed his son, and then it, listed his, it said this, and his estranged children. See, now we know what that means, don't we? At a funeral, no less. And I want to tell you something. As uncomfortable as it is for your ears to hear that, the the reality of our estrangement from God is worse. Does that make sense to you this morning? So we're alienated, we're estranged, we're alienated from God by our rebellion. We're also alienated by God's wrath against our rebellion. Did you hear that? It's really, in actuality, a double alienation. We're alienated from God by our rebellion, but then we're also alienated again from God by God's wrath towards our rebellion. A friend of mine this week posted on Facebook, I should have wrote it down, but it, it was just so disturbing to me. He said, if, you, if your gospel presentation um, includes the wrath of God um, in more than his mercy, then you, you have not presented the gospel. And thankfully, there, I, I, I don't ever respond to those things publicly. I do them privately. But I said, if the wrath of God were not as great as his mercy, there would be no need for the gospel. Amen? Amen? We're alienated from God by our rebellion. We're alienated again by God's wrath towards our rebellion. A double alienation I say, why, why are you pounding that point? Because I want you to get this A double alienation, two sides. Only God can fix this. It's going to take God to deal with this. because all I can do is rebel. And if God is going to be God and remain the God of Scripture, his only stance against my rebellion has to be wrath against sin. So enter our great high priest. Here's the answer. Now I want you to listen to this. The priest is God's appointed and anointed mediator through whom this estrangement is overcome. See, we need somebody to represent us to God and God to us. In his role as prophet, he represents God to us, thus saith the Lord. But in his role as priest, he represents fallen man to holy God. And he overcomes this estrangement. How does he do it? Well, you know how he does it. What do priests do? What's the main role? What's their main job? is to offer what? Sacrifice. And th- that sacrifice provides access to God. You remember Romans 6:23, "For the wages of sin is what? Church? Death. Death. Something has to die because of our sin. This harkens us back to Leviticus 16 and that high holy day of atonement in the Jewish calendar. That priest had to bring that sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation. So I want to share with you today how Jesus is that priest. If we think of that Old Testament high priest, We'd get up. That was quite a day for him. He would get up early. There were things he had to accomplish. He had to bathe a certain way. He had to put on his high priestly uh, outfit in a very specific way. He had to offer sacrifices for himself and his own household. There was a lot that had to be done. The last thing that was done was that robe that was put on that had those bells sewn into the bottom hem so that they could hear him ministering the blood of the atonement over the mercy seat. And then the rope that was around his waist because if something went wrong, his life was forfeit. And nobody's going in there to get him. We'll pull out his lifeless body so nobody else dies. I want to share with you this morning how Jesus accomplished this role as priest in two specific ways. And with that, we'll have the message this morning and the first is through his relationship of his identity, who he is. In relation to his identity, who he is, that Jesus was truly human. Remember, this, this, the reason that we need a priest is because of whose sin? Ours. It's a human problem. The Bible says, for all have what? sinned and fallen short of the glory of God it is the it is truly the one thing that all mankind has in common but it ought not to be what unites us in fact scripture tells us that sin divides us and it alienates us not only from God but from each other So, Jesus Christ is truly human. We see this and jot this down in Hebrews 3 1. If you got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, the scriptures say, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, so he's talking to believers. Strange wording here, though. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, or think King Jesus. Why does he call Jesus an apostle? What is an apostle? He's a messenger. That's kind of the, the idea of the prophet, a messenger from who? From God to us. And as a priest, he is, represents us to God. So the writer of Hebrews is waking us up to this concept that here is a truly human man who is representing us to God. Hebrews 5.1, if we go a little, delve a little further into this great book, this letter, we read this, For every high priest, Christ as our great high priest, Taken from among men Is appointed for men In the things pertaining to God That he may offer two things Don't miss this That he may offer gifts And sacrifices for sin Gifts and sacrifices for sin So here it is The high priest has to be a man Taken from among his brethren Right? Right? And he's got a job. His job is to represent fallen man in the things pertaining to who, church? Come on, wake up this morning. Who's, things pertaining to who? It's right there on the screen. To God. So what, how does he do that? How does, how, does he, how does he bridge the gap or attempt to between a sinful, rebellious man and holy God who's wrathful at this rebellious man? Two things. He offers God two things. What are they? They're right there on the screen. Gifts and sacrifices for sin. What does a gift do? It placates wrath. What does sacrifice do? It pays the penalty that's causing the wrath. You see it? Gifts and sacrifices. Sacrifice is that which was required. Don't miss this. A gift is something given in appreciation for the sacrifice. You see it? The Old Testament saints did not just bring blood sacrifices. They also brought gifts to say thank you. There was a free will offering. There's an overflow of a grateful heart. And the priest mediated. The priest was the in-between always in these things. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2, um, it talks about how Jesus was just like you and I are. How he was tempted in every way. Yet without sin. He was confronted with temptation and weakness. I want to think about Jesus as being weak, do we? He was truly human. Do you ever get tired? Man, I do. And my wife can attest, the older I get, the, the, the quicker I'm tired. I'll tell you what. I'm turning to my mother. My, my mom, you know, she's up at... Four o'clock every morning, but she goes to bed at three o'clock every afternoon. <laughs> Mom, the kid said the other day, one day Nana's going to go to bed so early, she's actually become a night owl. The clock's going to flip on her. I don't know. But I'm turning into that. Man, I can't wait for it to get dark. i got an excuse to go to bed. Right? I'm tired. Jesus was tired. Do you remember when when the, he got in the boat and they were going to the other side? And, and it's basically this hurricane. It's like a hurricane. It would blow in off the uh, Mountains of Galilee, in the Mediterranean Sea, and they would funnel right. These winds would funnel right on down to, and it would get those winds spinning. And this was a bad one. There were seasoned sailors in that boat, and they were doing everything they could do, and the ship was going down. (laughs) So it wasn't like these guys were inexperienced. They had been through this before, and when they come to him in a panic, there is a good reason to panic. And what's Jesus doing? What do they find him doing in the bow of the boat? How do you sleep through a hurricane? Now, my children can. Uh, I am amazed at how kids can sleep through ruckus, and thank God for that, right? Why was he asleep? The Bible tells us he was tired. He was so tired physically that he could sleep through a hurricane. But I want you to see his divinity in that. They wake him up, and he stands up, and he rebukes the wind in the waves he says, peace be still. And I don't think if you, we realize what's really happening there. Literally, the winds stop, But the Bible seems to indicate that immediately the ocean goes from massive turbulence to dead calm. And the record tells us that his disciples were amazed. And they literally said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, this is truly God, but he's also truly man. He was exhausted. He experienced and understood all human emotions. He was righteously angry. He understood human choice. He made decisions as a human being. He learned. Who taught him to read? He probably learned at the foot of his mother to read, the Son of God. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and in stature. He got taller. He grew up. He got smarter. The God who knows all things had to learn his ABCs. Or in Hebrew, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, or Greek actually. Then he had to learn his Hebrew letters. He learned. He was truly human. There are two errors in the church today. And if you listen to the preaching in a typical evangelical church, You will hear of a Jesus who is less than human or a Jesus who is less than divine. And I know you're sitting here today saying, so what, Pastor Paul? What is this? Why does this matter to me? Brothers and sisters, you sit out there today as absolute bait for the cults of our our culture today because you do not understand this and you can't defend it. You must have a biblical, orthodox understanding of both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ or you are literally a sitting duck for deception. This is what protects you. The Bible tells us that not only is he, through his identity, as truly human, but through the other half of his identity, or the other part of his identity, which is he was truly divine. He was God in human flesh. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 explains this to us. I think that there it is. God, who at various times spoke in various ways, spoke in times past to the Father's, By the prophets. There's your prophets again, right? Word from God to the prophets to the people of God. goes on to say, He has in these last days spoken to us. And who did He speak to us by? Son. Prophet. See, the Son of God is the role of prophet right there. Whom He has appointed heir of all things. Now check this out. Through whom, through this prophet's son, what was made? Yeah. Through whom also he made the worlds. Notice that's plural. See, they had a constant. They, they understood there was more than one world than this globe. Right? God knew that because he made it. But Jesus is the agent through which everything's created. John 1 1. Who, being the brightness of his, the Father's glory, and the express image of his what? Person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. And don't miss that word, word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And those people that come knocking on your door, that's the first thing they're going to attack. That's why you need to know this. When he had by himself, who helped him? Nobody. All forsook him, even the father as he identified with our sin. By himself purged our sins. In other words, wiped the record out and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a king. What a, what a priest he is. So we see that this is, this is the Christ. He is truly divine. Is that the last verse, Lisa, or is there one more? There we go. Having become so much better than angels. In other words, don't compare him to any angel. He's so much higher. Well, who's higher than angels? God himself. As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And, we, and that harkens us back uh, to Philippians, doesn't it? That the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. Now I want to tell you something. The early church had to deal with these very issues. What's the old saying? Um, that if we do not learn from history, we are destined to repeat it. I forget who said that. Paul, do you remember who said that? It's attributed to several people. But, but it's true. And I fear today that because we, we, have, we don't, have not learned from church history... We no longer appreciate church history. We don't care about councils. You know. But oh, brothers and sisters, this is so important that we have a basic understanding that the early church had these same issues, but they dealt with it. The church dealt with this idea of Christ being truly human and truly divine. In Nicaea, you might just jot this down on the back because you need to know these things. In Nicaea, in the year A.D. 325, there was a guy named Arius. And Arius believed that Jesus was a created being, and that he was of a different substance of the Father, and thus he was not co-eternal with God. He was not the second person of the Trinity. He was something different. Um, he was created. So he Jesus this comes into existence in 3 AD when he is born. He was of a different substance. And the Nicene Council comes to the, they meet and they start to debate this out. And there was a guy there, one of the representatives, his name uh, was Nicholas. And he's pretty popular right now because he's the one that St. Nicholas is based off of Santa Claus. And um, he got so fed up with Arius spouting this heresy that he gets up and he punches Arius right in the face. (laughs) That's my kind of Santa Claus. (laughs) I saw a meme. I said, man, i got to get a shirt of that. It's, it's a picture of Santa. And he said, I'm here to give out gifts and punch heretics in the face, and I'm out of gifts. <laughs> right? That's literally, you want know to talk about Santa Claus? Santa Claus punched this guy in the face because he was sick of these heretical words coming out of his mouth about his high priest, King Jesus. And that all happens at Nicaea. So finally, after the fight's over and the dust settles, they come up with this statement that basically says, Jesus was truly God. He's not of a different substance He's of the same substance. Very God of very God. Then we go forward, not very far. That was 325. Then in 381, we had to have another council because there's a guy named Apollinaris who was spouting something that called Apollinarianism. So they had to meet together in Constantinople in 381. And Apollinaris said this. He said, Jesus' divine nature is has displaced his human mind and will. So the godness of Jesus comes in and pushes out the true humanity of Jesus in in, in the area of will and mind. And then right on the heels of him, a guy named Nestorius, um, which would come to be known as Nestorianism, they had these two issues, taught that Jesus had literally two separate natures and two separate wills. And that as a result, that led, uh, this was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in A.D. 431. Then 10 years after that, a guy named Eutychus denied that Jesus was truly human. Saying that Jesus' human nature was absorbed or swallowed up by his divine nature. Again, this is the feeble attempt of fallen man to explain this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and what we know from Scripture as to His deity and His humanity. So finally, they call one more big council. It's the Council of Chalcedon. Brothers and sisters, we ought to thank God for the Council of Chalcedon. They met in 451 A.D. The council anathematized, which means cursed, those that taught that Christ had only a single divine nature, and those who taught a mixture of His two natures. And they created what was called the Chalcedonian definition. And I know you're saying, the "Preacher, why are you telling me you need to know this? You must know this in order to worship Him correctly and understand Him in a beautiful simplicity and complexity that is the Christ." The Chalcedonian definition affirms this: quote, "Christ is the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in humanity and in manhood." When you hear "perfect," you are think "complete." Truly God and truly man. That's where we get that statement from. Now, I know these are big words, but I'm going to explain them, and then we're going to move on. And consubstantial with us, according to manhood. Jesus Christ is to be acknowledged in two natures. Inconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably. It's called the hypostatic union, the coexistence of Christ's two natures. He was truly man, the nature of man. He was truly God, the nature of God. Two natures, whole, perfect or complete, and yet distinct. The Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined in one person, and I want you to listen to this, without conversion, one didn't become the other, without composition, without or confusion without conversion composition or confusion the dual nature of christ i'm almost done with this part but this is so important if you can write fast write this down the divine is not changed into the human nor is the human nature of christ transmuted into the divine what's that mean there's no conversion one one nature does not become the other nature Number two, no conversion. Number two, the divine and the human don't come together to form a third entity. That's Nap- Napoleonarianism. There is no composition. It's like a compound in, in chemistry. You know, you get two elements that come together, they join and they create a third compound. No. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Th- one does not become the other by mixing together. And, and that's the third one. Neither are the two natures mixed somehow. There's no confusion. No conversion, no composition, and no confusion. Do we have personally two natures operating like alternate current, AC and then DC? No, we don't. Jesus here acts like he is. He is truly God, that nature, and truly man, human nature, combined as one. His identity has to come from the scripture, not from the mind of a fallen man. Truly man Truly God. And from this identity proceeds the second and final way in which Jesus accomplishes his role as our great high priest, and that is his activity. First of all, his identity, who he is, then his activity, what he's done. The action of Christ. But but beloved, please don't, don't miss this point. The activity of Christ proceeds from the identity. Of Christ, are, are you tracking with that? Truly God, truly man. It's got to be both of those in one, indivisibly. So his activity. And there are two results from this activity that we see in, in the Scripture of his high priestly work. First of all is he delivers us from the bondage of Satan. Anyone glad about that? He delivers us from the bondage of Satan. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, look at this, shared in the same. Do you see that? He shares in the flesh and blood with us. He's truly human. He's been there and done that. He really is one of us. It continues to what end? That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Did you see that? That when this humanity of Jesus dies, he somehow destroys the one who has the power of death, and, and then he names it, that is who? The devil. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? The, the, this, is, this is, again, the work of the high priest. That Through his, his sacrifice, his death, he destroys the devil. But how? That's, that's a good YBH there, right? How... Does Jesus' death destroy the devil? Verse 15 of Hebrews 2. "And release those who, through fear of death, were all their life, lifetimes subject to bondage. How many of you know people that are afraid to die? Right? Fear of death is the chain that binds us to the enemy. What what does John tell us in 1 John? Perfect love does what with fear? Cast Cast it out. Why? Because fear has torment. Love is not afraid. Love is fearless. He conquered death by dying, listen to this, as the sinner of all sinners, though having no sin himself. That's powerful. Think about that. He conquered death by dying as the sinner of all sinners, though having no sin himself. This is his cross his activity on the cross of God, of, of, of Christ. And here's what he does. He delivers us, this is the second part, from the wrath of God. Yeah. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham Verse seventeen. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren—that's us—that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You see that in the thing? He's a—he's a merciful. He's walked in our shoes. He had no sin, but he takes all of our sin into and onto himself, and he becomes the greatest sinner of all times in the eyes of God as he. As he becomes sin. And he delivers us from the wrath of God. He's going to a holy God on behalf of fallen man. Hebrews 2.17 says, To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me back up to 16. For indeed... I said that, verse 17. Therefore, in all things he made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, here's the end of that verse, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what is propitiation? You probably haven't used that word in a sentence this week. And the answer is this. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction specifically towards God to appease God, to satisfy God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person. So there's appeasement, satisfaction. And then, number two, being reconciled to him. How many of you know you can have your your wrath uh, against someone who wronged you, appeased, satisfied? Let's, Let's say someone backs into your car. And, you know, you're just so mad about that. And then, you know, you go through the insurance process and it gets fixed. And your, your anger of, 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 the, of the actual offense is over. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is what? Reconciled. It, 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 you understand this in, in, in the real world, in your relationship with people. Someone sins against you as a follower of Jesus Christ because you've been forgiven so much. You, you extend forgiveness to that person. But that doesn't mean that that relationship is reconciled. And sometimes it never should be depending on the nature of the the sin. okay, So there's appeasement, but then the back half of propitiation is reconciliation and being reconciled to Him. Isaiah 59, 2, jot that down. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. He won't hear. If you don't believe that, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, check this out, against how much ungodliness? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But oh, I love this verse, 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, because we didn't, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. He appeased the wrath of God, but it didn't stop there. He brought us to God and reconciled us, the offending part offenders, with the offended. You say, "What's what's that mean?" Let me give you this illustration. It is though at one hand Christ is holding back the wrath of God. And today he extends his hand to sinful fallen man, saying, "Come to me, let me let me appease this wrath of almighty God and let me give to you the salvation for which your soul is longing. But, oh, brothers and sisters, heed this and hear this today. One day, this King, this Lord, is going to remove both hands and sinful man will bear an eternity of the wrath of God forever in a place called hell. And that's you. And that's me. If we have not surrendered and received this gift of our priest our great high priest, King Jesus. I want to close with this astute quote from Matthew Henry. Henry says this, Take Jesus for your king and by baptism swear allegiance to him. Take him for your prophet and hear him. And take him for your priest to make atonement. For you. You done that? You say, well, preacher, I'm I'm coming to church. Good. That's not the answer. That's the path. The answer is for you to seek repentance from God. You say, how am I gonna know when when God's given me repentance? You'll know. (laughs) Oh anybody here saved? Will you know? You'll know. Tom, do you remember when you knew? He said, oh my word, I really am a sinner, and I am a horrible one at that. I remember when the weight of my sin was awakened in my spirit. Oh my. I just wanted to run away. But I knew enough to know there was nowhere to run, so I ran to the cross. The only place of refuge and safety that I could run, and it became beautiful to me. When you have, have, have repented and been given that gift and acted upon it, you will know, you will know. Because the flip side of that will be faith. You will run to that cross and you will receive this king, this prophet and this priest. So remember, as priest, he appeases wrath and reconciles. Through what? Sacrifice. And in closing, do you remember as prophet, He was the word that he brought to us. Listen to me. As priest, he is the sacrifice that he offers. As prophet, he was the word that he declared. And as priest, he is the sacrifice that he offers for the appeasement of wrath and the reconciliation of sinful man. Oh, may we glory in that salvation today. Amen, church? And can I just give you this word? And as I do, I want my musicians to come. We've got a last song to share with you. As I want you to respond in worship, in repentance, and in faith towards this glorious priest of ours. That sacrifice was expensive. It harkens all the way back to the Old Testament. And that Passover lamb that those Jewish fathers would bring into the house for 10 days, just long enough for the kids to get attached to it. And then to take that lamb to the threshold where that gutter was to keep the water out. To straddle that little lamb and to literally take a blade and cut its throat. And that blood pumped into that gutter as the life fled out of that little lamb. You know, I think if we still did that, we might would think a little differently about our sins. I know our kids would. Can you imagine? Kevin, can you imagine your girl standing around watching that? Sin is horrible. Look what it does. Oh beloved, sin is horrible. Look what it did. Not to a lamb to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want you to remember Him today. I want you to run to Him. I want you to pray for repentance and faith.
1: What a faithful
0: high priest we have. He was the sacrifice He offered. And He appeased every drop of the wrath of God. And not only that, He stopped there. He then takes us by the hand and says, I want you to meet my dad. Y'all are okay again because of what I've done. That's why the stupid young son can come home and instead of get a slap on the face in servant's quarters, he gets a hug, a kiss, a ring, a robe and sandals for his feet because every drop of the wrath of God has been appeased. Reconciliation is possible. And that's for you if you'll accept Father God, we love you today. We thank you for King Jesus. We thank you for being given something we don't deserve. In fact, quite the opposite. Oh, we thank you for a reconciliation that is offered along with this work of our great high priest. We pray that our children would receive this and walk in it, and that it would transform them. We pray the same for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. That they would know you as prophet, as priest, and as king. We worship you for that today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.